Welcome to the Teach Strong podcast. My name's Sam Hart. I'm a primary school teacher on a mission to help school staff discover truly effective approaches to well-being. And this podcast is a platform for me to bring you the knowledge and experience of real experts who can break down the research and the tools that we can apply to our everyday lives to feel happier and healthier. Joining me on the show today, all the way from the Gold Coast in Australia, is Dr. Megan Lee. Megan is a senior teaching fellow at Bond University who specialises in nutritional psychiatry, mental health and body image. Now this link between our mental health and the food we eat is something that I and I think many other people didn't know anything about growing up. But over the past few years I kept hearing more and more about how what we put on our plate plays a role in how we feel. So I wanted to invite an expert onto the podcast to talk about this because as you've probably heard me say many times before, I believe nutrition is an area that has a huge potential for improving the well-being of school staff and pupils. And who better to talk to than researcher, scientist and academic Dr. Megan Lee. During our conversation, I asked Megan to tell us more about this link between food and mental health how it is that food can affect our mood, and of course, which foods we can focus on to improve our mental health and well-being. A little uh, pre-warning, because of, I think, the the time difference, there were a few technical difficulties recording this episode. Um, We didn't get through it, but it it was tricky at times. Um, Yeah, at at one point, the the connection cut out and so we had to come back in there are a couple of other little issues with delays and things um we did our best and i hope you appreciate that um and that yeah it's, it could be difficult when we're dealing with a 10 hour time difference but on one hand this is what's amazing about technology the fact that i can talk to someone halfway around the world um but then at the same time it can come with some issues Hello, Megan, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Sam. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's great to have you on. So I could say good evening for myself, but it's actually good morning for you, isn't, isn't it? Because you are over there in Australia. What time is it over there? It's around 8 o'clock in the morning here in Australia. Nice, and it's it's ten o'clock at night for me. So I've never. I was just saying, was I've, I've never done this before. We've I've chatted to a couple of people in America, but but not over in Australia. So I'm yeah, really pl- pleased that we got to do this and and sync up the the timelines, and I'm able to chat to you about a topic that I'm really interested in. Um, I've been following you on Twitter for a while now, and really enjoying what you post. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm really really grateful that you're giving me your your time for what is your Friday morning, my Thursday evening, to chat a little more about food and mental health. So nutritional psychiatry, can you tell me a little bit more about what does this mean? What is nutritional psychiatry? Yeah, so the field of nutritional psychiatry is uh, a field of science and uh, research that's surrounding uh, the nexus between nutrition and psychology. So it's been known for quite a long time that eating a healthy diet, like fresh fruit, vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, whole grains, those types of things is good for physical health and it helps with uh, 
chronic illness like cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, and uh, lots of different other things. We've known that for a long time. But it's only been the last kind of 10 to 15 years where people started to turn towards, well, what about mental health? And uh, way back in the early 2000s, uh, Professor Felice Jacker from the Food and Mood Centre here in Australia um, started to um, look at these questions using research um, and started focusing on, well, what do healthy and unhealthy dietary patterns, how do they impact how uh, people feel and um, impact uh, mental health illness like depression and anxiety? Oh, interesting. Sorry, a little bit of a delay, but that's, that's okay. Fine. We'll work with it. Yeah, no worries. Um, all right, interesting. Yeah, like you said, it's it's something that growing up, we, we all were aware that food impacts our physical health, but that link with the mental health is something that for, for myself, I think other listeners growing up, we weren't aware of at all, were we? So, what does what does the current research say about food and mental health? What are the really interesting studies that that you're looking into and, and even in, very much involved with as well, aren't you? Yeah, so I started my PhD in 2017, 2018, and I was really interested in um, how food impacted our mental health. And I decided to do a meta-analysis or an umbrella review of all of the papers that have ever been written on diet and depression in particular. And I, I was really interested because and shocked that the very first paper that had ever been written on diet and depression was actually published in 2008. So it was only 10 years before I had started asking this question. I was like, this is crazy. But in that umbrella review, there was 18 systematic reviews that had looked at over 200 different primary papers on uh, diet and depression. And there was a pretty clear resounding uh, message across these 200 papers that eating this healthier diet with fresh whole foods um, compared to eating a diet that was high in ultra processed, refined, and sugary foods was actually. Um, impacting depressive symptoms. So the higher quality diet you had, the uh, less symptoms that you experienced and the lower quality diet that you had, the more symptoms that you seem to um, experience. But the field was predominantly, and predominantly I mean there was only three, two or three papers at that time that had looked at the causal effect of this relationship. So everything was epidemiological, observational, cross-sectional kind of survey style or some longitudinal studies on um, the association. And when we do these types of studies, we can't say for sure which way the relationship is. So we were really unsure even at that time and still now in some ways whether it's the diet that's impacting the symptoms of depression or whether it's having the symptoms of depression that make you eat an unhealthy diet. Because the last thing you want to do when you're in the depths of depression <laughs> is eat a salad. So we're, um, and you can't unpick this with um, these types of survey style studies. All oh, right. Yeah. And I suppose that there are other factors as well, like 
Um, you have to tease out whether these people, they're, they're eating really healthily because they're also exercising, which we know in, impacts mental health and perhaps their socioeconomic status and things like that. So understanding it could be really, really difficult to like tease that out, can't it? Um, is there anything else you could kind of add around that? <laughs> Yeah, and that's a really good point. And in these studies, although it's difficult to tease out the causal impacts of diet and depression, one thing that we can do is serve in the surveys is ask people about their physical activity levels, their sleep patterns, mm. their social connection, um, which we know are the other kind of lifestyle factors that impact depression as well. So we can ask them those questions and then kind of control for them when we um, analyze the data. So we can say, this is the association or the relationship between diet and depression after we take into account all these other things that people do. Um, and that's exactly what we did in another one of the studies that I did in my PhD, where we looked at a longitudinal data set of, there was 50,000 women in the data set over 25 years that were Australian women. Um, and it's a large data set looking at all elements of women's health and we picked out the, the food frequency questionnaire data and the depressive data, and we found um, the exact same thing. We found that those who ate higher di diet quality mm. had less symptoms and those who had a lower diet quality had greater symptoms. So it's being replicated across the studies. Now, I know I said predominantly 95% of the studies are um, observational, but there are now four randomized controlled trials which are very exciting so in 2017 uh, Felice Jaffer and her crew at the Food and Mood Center um, published the very first randomized controlled trial on uh, diet and mental health and a randomized control trial is the gold standard for trying to assess causality of an impact of two um, types of things so it's when you take a group of people, say 56 people were in this trial, you split them in half, you put half of them on the intervention, and in this case the intervention was a modified Mediterranean diet through pattern, which is full of all those wonderful foods that I said, fresh fruits, nuts, seeds, legumes, whole grains, um, oily fish, a little bit of red wine, a little bit of dark chocolate, which we love, and um, it was modified for an Australian population. So there was a little bit more red meat in it than uh, is usually consumed in a Mediterranean dietary pattern just because we know that to make sure that the uh, participants would stay on the diet, adding it closer to what they were eating before, but removing all those ultra-processed, refined, sugary foods and what is really exciting about that, um, that was the intervention group. The control group actually had a um, social control. So they they had as much contact with the researchers as the nutrition group did, the intervention group did, so that social connection wasn't playing a part of a role. And what they found was really exciting. So over 30% of the people in the intervention group, their symptoms decreased so dramatically that they were no longer considered to have a clinical um, diagnosis of depression or their, their scores on the on the on the scale went down so they were below the cutoff 32 percent compared to like eight percent of the control and that's pretty big numbers when you're talking about any type of research 
Um, and then what's even more exciting for the field was that in the same year, Natalie Parletta in uh, another part of Australia did the same study, not realising they were both doing something very similar and got identical results, like identical results. And they did a little bit more. I think they supplemented with the omega-3 fish oil in mm. that one. Mm. Um, but since then, two more studies, one by Jessica Bayes and another one by Francis, have um, come out on different populations. So young men, Jessica um, Bayes looked at young men in Australia, same thing. We keep getting the same result that if we change the diet, then the depressive symptoms change. So we're starting to see um, really exciting causal stuff yeah. around this. And just how powerful is that? Like like you said, the fact that these studies have been designed and, and now they've they found, they've been designed so well, and then to find that it is the food, it is really the food that is making a difference. And like you said, 30%, that is huge. I mean, I, I don't know how that compares to um, um, like drug treatments in, in terms of treating uh, depressive symptoms. Um, I mean, how, how does it compare? Is, is that kind of on a par? Is it is it is, is that something to be said of? <laughs> That's a really interesting question because what we know from the literature with antidepressant medications in particular is that they only tend to work for about a third of the people who uh, have symptoms. So and another thing that we're finding in this field of nutritional psychiatry is the biological mechanisms surrounding that relationship. So um, there are a third of the people who antidepressant medications work for because the biological mechanism behind that is that there is a lack of serotonin in the brain or this, the uptake of serotonin by neurotransmitters is impacted. Mm. But we're also starting to see other reasons for depressive symptoms. So things like uh, that link between the gut microbiome and the brain is a really big one that's being studied now at the Food and Mood Centre. So that's a really uh, keen research interest now is that our gut and our brain completely linked if there's something going on in the gut and our gut microbiome is unhappy, then it can lead to or potentially lead to mood and depressive symptoms. So that's really exciting stuff that's happening now. Um, other things like the HPA axis or um, we see smaller hippocampus in people who have unhealthier diets, things like that. Um, there's some really interesting stuff that's directly related to our how our bodies work rather than actually things wrong with our brains. Mm. So, yes, it's and all these things can be um, improved by improving our, our diet basically and exercise as well, increasing exercise, sleeping properly, all of these lifestyle factors. So we never say in nutritional psychiatry, it's if you just change your diet, you will improve your symptoms. It comes along with all those other lifestyle things as well. You've got <laughs> It's all a big unified system. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and it works for those other things as well, doesn't it? I mean, you can do all the exercise in the world, but if you're not eating well and you're not getting enough sleep and you're not making moments to 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 relax and you're not connecting with people, then it, it, that's not going to go very far, is it? So, uh, of course, it's all these different factors, all these different approaches, um, and and the fact that the brain and body are so linked, and I think that's another thing that. Growing up, we didn't think about it. We kind of thought that they were so separate and these different entities that we would treat differently. And now it's it's so clear how linked they are, aren't they? Um, and you mentioned the gut microbiome. 
I've been lucky enough to speak to a, a, a couple of researchers in, in that field recently and on this podcast. And that is just another thing that just blows the mind. But the, the, the links with mental health are, are really, really fascinating as well. Oh, brilliant. Um, so we, we've mentioned these studies and we've mentioned that food is just, you know, it's another piece of the puzzle, isn't it? It's another little lever that we can pull. Um, and I'm coming at this from, from, um, I, I'm a primary school teacher and I want to get some empowering information out to school staff, you know, who are, who are looking for ways that can improve their health and well-being really effectively. And I, and I always talk about, well, I try and always talk about this on social media that, the food that we eat can be such a powerful lever to pull and it can be so enjoyable though, can't it? So going back to what I said, we, we've, we've talked about the studies. We've talked about how nutrition can be a really um, important piece of the puzzle. And you've mentioned diet quality and we kind of touched on processed foods, um, whole foods. Could you explain a little bit more about what, what that actually means, what that look likes, looks like? Um, I, I throw out the term whole foods quite a bit on social media. And then I sometimes catch myself and think, well, actually five years, if five years ago, if someone had said whole foods to me, I might not have known exactly what that meant and diet quality. Um, perhaps there's a bit of misunderstanding about what actually is a high quality diet because you can go into a supermarket in, in England and all the advertisements are thrown at you. This is high protein. This is low fat. Um, and so does that then equal high quality? I think perhaps not, but it would be great to hear your input on what high quality and what um, whole foods means and what's perhaps lower quality. <laughs> yeah, and that's a, that's an excellent question and something that we always need to make sure that we define correctly. So um, I think the easiest way to understand what a whole food is and what a healthy dietary pattern is, is if you try and eat foods as close to as natural as possible. So um, pick them off the tree, try and take them out of the ground. In Australia, we have a little bit, we are really lucky that we have um, quite large plots of land that we live on. Mm. <laughs> so lots of us have fruit trees, veggie gardens, herb gardens, but even the ones um, who live in the city, you can pop little herb um, pots on your windows and things. Um, and get to start like learning the link between growing something and eating something is really important and teaching our kids where our food comes from. Um, it's a big one. Um, but as well as that, some processed foods are actually good for us as well. So it's these ultra processed foods that seem to be um, making the worst impact in um, for mental health. And I know we talk about it over here all the time. I don't know in England if they do. It's like if you walk around the outskirts of the supermarket here and I, you can only buy from the outskirts, that's where all your fruit and veggies is, kind of your breads are there as well and your meat products and then your um, non-meat products and your kind of dairy aisle and your frozen foods. But in the middle are all your like packaged, jarred foods. If a food is on a shelf and doesn't expire in a normal temperature, that concerns me. <laughs> so how is it there and it not and it doesn't go off? Like how long can you keep that on a shelf for and it doesn't go off? That that's a worry. So it's those kind of trying to minimize those. And I make lots of food that has jarred stuff in it, 
but it's not what I would predominantly eat. So trying to make your diet predominantly fresh fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes. In Western-style diets, we don't eat enough legumes and whole grains, and that's kind of what sets us apart from those really healthy uh, dietary pattern countries like the Mediterranean, Japan, um, places like that where they eat lots more stuff that's natural, I guess. Yeah, and it is similar in the supermarkets here, and that is advice that I've heard over in the UK as well. Yeah, stick to around the outside edge of a supermarket. Um, that's right. Yeah, but it's great to get those kind of definitions of what whole food is and that um, highlighting those ultra processed foods. There's there's a lot of talk about that over here as well at the moment. There's There was um, an article that came out recently about just how much ultra processed food we're eating in the UK and how much is served in schools as well. Um, therefore, how much ultra processed food our children are eating. And so... I, I just think all these things are linked, aren't they? And, and you've mentioned the Mediterranean diet a couple of times, which I, I guess is one of those diets that has been so well studied, hasn't it? But not just in terms of the yeah. mental health, but in terms of cardiovascular, cardiovascular disease and diabetes and blood pressure and all these things. It's like... It, it, these diets they don't just they're not just good for that one thing are they they're just they they're across the board are helping us in Mm. so many ways and it's a a a beautiful vibrant colorful really filling really tasty way of eating so it's just it's it's such a shame to see those kind of diet wars on social media isn't it when actually we've it seems like we've got quite a lot of the answers and if we started at that basis at that that um at that point, if we if we centered our um, diets around these types of foods, and then kind of, you know, added and took away uh, as needed, that would be in a much mm. better position. And I, and I've seen other people on social media talk about, you know, the the one thing that lots of these nutritionists, um, or maybe not nutritionists, but the kind of the, the nutrition gurus out there, what they all agree on is cutting out ultra processed food, don't they? And yet it's still... That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, it is, but it, I don't think it's happening yet. And I, I think people would like to think that they're not eating many, much ultra processed food, but actually we are, but maybe we just yeah. don't don't realise it. And, that, and I include myself in that yeah. as, as well. I, I've caught myself, um, you know, getting those things, you know, I'll pick up the the lentil crisp and I think oh they're a bit healthier because you know they're lentils when actually they're still a deep fried crisp aren't they um and I eat loads of it you know a bit of granola a bit of cookies here and there which of course are all part of um you know a balanced life but it's interesting to recognize this and think this is something that we could be if we're reducing could be really helping us in in so many ways yeah and what's really interesting about that is that All of those ultra-processed foods, they come with these bright packages that tell you how healthy they are, like exactly what you were saying before about high-end protein, high-end whole grains, all these things. The things that don't need those kind of flashy advertising are the things that are actually healthy for you. You don't see an apple in the supermarket saying, take me, I'm high in fibre and I've got good sugars. Like you don't see that. They're not promoting themselves. They've got those tiny little stickers on them that, like, don't say anything, just a little barcode. But all the foods that need help to be purchased have all these fancy words. And it's it's unfortunate because it's it's not the consumer's fault. 
a lot of the chronic illness that we have in society can be brought down to the fact that we eat too much ultra-processed foods, but it's not our fault. It's the system that we are surrounded by. It's the advertising system that we're constantly barraged with these, eat this, eat this, I'm healthy, I'm not healthy, all this type of stuff. The packaging in the supermarkets, the advertising on that, it's like hard. Even for someone who has a degree in nutrition and knows what the good foods are, it's still tricky to pick out exactly what is healthy and what isn't. I mean, I only just learned how to choose a correct bread from the lovely Simon Hill at The Proof. He did a podcast on bread. And I was like, what? I've been eating this bread all my life from my supermarket. It's super dark, full of nuts and seeds and things. It's called a low GI super loaf. And I was eating it thinking that it was healthy. But when I listened to Simon's podcast about how you determine um, what type of flour they use and what percentages of fiber and things are in it, I looked and it was like white mm. flour that had maybe potentially been dyed a color to make it look like wholemeal. I was shocked. I'm like, oh my gosh, I thought I was doing the right thing. So even when you have like this knowledge, it's it's hard because you're constantly being tricked by the system. So yeah, um, as long as we try to do our best, that's the important thing, right? And and being educated, listening to podcasts like your podcast and the Proof podcast and mm. um, Rupi Adjula, he's amazing in the doctor's kitchen. Mm. Um there's so many really good people out there talking about nutrition and, and breaking down the science, which is awesome. I love science communicators. They're my favourite people in the world because we do the science, but, like, getting it out to the public is the hard part. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. A shout-out to Simon at The Proof. Yeah, he's um, he's a bit of a hero mm. of mine and a big a big inspiration for this podcast as well. Um yeah, like you said, we there's that kind of misconception. I think so, so many people feel the guilt and the oh, it's just it's just my discipline. I've just got no free will, and it's it's all on me. And that's how we've been made to feel, isn't it? That it's it's your fault. You should be able to control yourself. When I'll just go and fill up my car with petrol, and I'm in the line waiting to pay for it, and the whole queue is just filled. All that I can reach for at that moment is processed food, isn't it? It's the chocolate mm. and the crisps and the sweets. There's not fruit all the way lined up um, alongside <laughs> it, is there? It's just those things where, you know, of course, that's how we're wired. We just think, what, well, that's a, a quick, tasty treat. Why wouldn't I grab that? So absolutely, um, I just want to, to, to reaffirm that here to listeners that it's, it's not your fault. It is this environment that we are surrounded in and and you can only say no so many times in a day can't you and it, it becomes really really difficult exactly <laughs> oh, right so you kind of mentioned about well no you, you did mention about your some of your food choices and and how you'd rethought um the, the bread that you were selecting and maybe i can use that very loosely as like a little segue into one of my closing questions which is making this a bit more practical i suppose because um yep we've talked about the the amazing research that's out there we've talked about those there are these studies showing linking our diet quality with mental health and now we can think right well 
if that is, if that's something that um, a person is looking to improve, then it's another piece of the puzzle. And, and we can think about food choices um, if, if we're on that path to wanting to improve our mental health. But what might that look like in a day? Um, we've mentioned some of these ingredients that we want to eat. We've mentioned some of them that maybe we want to lessen um, or perhaps avoid completely. Um, yeah, what might it look like in a day? And I guess we could kind of do this in in two ways. If I was to, one way we could do it is if I was to wake up tomorrow morning and think, what are some of the worst foods I could eat? What could I have for breakfast that's not doing me any favours? And what could I have for lunch that's not doing me any favours at all? And so on and so on. Um, perhaps we could start there. What are the foods that we absolutely want to be avoiding? <laughs> okay, so I would like to answer this question. There was also a question on on Twitter this week um, when you said you were going to be talking to me about this and someone asked about carbohydrates and mental health. And I was like, yes, I really want to answer that question. But I can answer that question and this question at the same time. So um, we have this thing called the sugar roller coaster. Mm. And the sugar roller coaster is something that happens to us. And it's, it's also, again, not our fault because traditionally the sugar roller coaster begins at breakfast. <laughs> and it's the way that really sets up our day, right? So at breakfast time, what are the types of breakfast foods that we usually eat? Sugary cereal, white bread toast with a jam potentially or a honey or a sugary topping. These traditional kind of breakfast things we eat, they're high in like simple carbohydrates. And what that does is simple carbohydrates send this rush of sugar to our brain, to our reward center, our dopamine goes off. It's awesome. We get this sugar rush. And it makes us feel really good for like a moment. And then by about morning tea, we start coming down. So like kind of that nine or 10 o'clock in the morning type and we reach for a biscuit or a cake. White flour is probably one of the worst things for your system when it comes to mental health and mood because it gives you this, mm -hmm. this peak again at morning tea and you're feeling great, having your coffee with your sugar. And then you kind of start coming down, lunchtime approaches, and you're looking for something, the next thing. So maybe like a white bread sandwich or um, a piece of pizza or what What types of things do you eat in English at, at lunchtime? Yeah, um, sam sandwiches with white bread yeah. and maybe some processed meat on them, yeah. um, a bag of crisps, maybe some more fruit juice. Um, yeah. All yeah, of these, chocolate bar. all of these, super high and simple carbohydrates. So the glucose rush to your brain again at lunchtime. Then you start coming down. Morning, afternoon tea starts rocking around. You're like, whoa! And then you want to reach for another thing that will peak your your sugar again. Do that again afternoon tea time. Come back down. Dinner time approaches, and you're looking for something convenient because you've had this sugar roller coaster all day. You can't think of what to cook for dinner. So you go past Hungry Jacks. Hungry Jacks? Do you have that over there? Sorry. McDonald's or Kentucky Fried Chicken. You get that because it's easy and you're not feeling that great because you've been up and down, up and down all day. And then you eat that and then that's not satisfying because it's got no nutrition in it. And you start coming down again after dinner where we shouldn't really be eating before bedtime and we start looking for ice cream or some type of like sweet snack because I've just had this overload of salt and sodium and I really want something sweet. So you're constantly on this sugar roller coaster all day of simple carbohydrates, all day, 
up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, and your brain is like that is impacting your mood and how you feel. So that was the sugar roller coaster. The best way to get off the sugar roller coaster is by eating yeah. a complex carbohydrate first thing in the morning. Easiest way to do that, whole wheat toast, avocado. Usually that's the best one because it's like got a, um, a good fats in it which will help with uh, satiety and keeping you uh, full until uh, lunchtime, which you don't want to be snacking in between if you don't if you don't need to. But if you do want to snack, have some nuts, some seeds. I love smoothies. I'm a big smoothie fan because I'm very busy in the morning and I rush around. So my favourite smoothie is uh, packed full of plants. So it's called a pumpkin pie smoothie. It's got pumpkin, roast pumpkin. A little bit of lemon rind, um, coconut yogurt, oat milk. It's got nuts and seeds. So I use hemp seeds, chia seeds, flax seeds, sesame seeds. I throw walnuts in. Um, what else goes in there? Lots of things. Vanilla, um, ground ginger, ground cinnamon, ground nutmeg, a little bit of turmeric, not too much, or it tastes like curry. <laughs> um, I can get 14 plants into one smoothie in the morning and that will keep me full until lunchtime. Now, the important thing as well in breakfast to stop that sugar roller coaster is to eat some form of protein because protein keeps you full mm. and it helps your brain. But reducing carbohydrates to zero carbohydrates is also not the way to go because your brain needs fuel and that's what carbohydrates are. So carbohydrates fuel your brain for the day. So you're not if you don't eat carbs because you're like, oh, I don't want to go on that sugar roller coaster, and I also don't eat carbs because I don't want to get fat, which I hate hearing. That's terrible. But that's bad for your brain also because it needs energy to function during the day. So we have our complex carbohydrates, a little bit of protein in the morning, and that will keep us full till lunchtime. We can snack on nuts and seeds. I like apricots and dried apricots and dried bananas, piece of fruit. Lunchtime, again, whole grain choices. Um, salads are great. Sometimes it's difficult to eat a salad in a colder climate like in the UK. I'm a big fan of I always eat leftovers for lunch, so dinner leftovers. Mm. So whatever I make for dinner, I always put in the freezer and then I have this treasure trove of things that I can choose for my lunches over the next month or so, depending on how many things I have in there. Um, then the same thing, dinner time, it's trying to pack your meals full as full of plants as you can. Now, I know that I've been talking a lot about what healthy diet quality and uh, unhealthy diet quality are, but what I found in my PhD, and I wasn't even looking at this in particular, but one of the most novel findings of my PhD, when I finished my four years, I sat back after looking at diet and mental health across all populations, and I was like, hang on a second. The overall message that I'm telling everyone, I stand up at conferences and I tell people healthy diet is fresh fruit, nuts, seeds, veggies, whole grains, legumes. Wait a second. These are all plant products, probiotics and prebiotics. Fermented foods are really good for your gut microbiome and therefore really good for your brain. These are all plant foods. I've just been preaching plant foods for four years and not realising what I've been doing. 
Mediterranean diet, the best diet on the planet for physical and mental health, same thing, full of plants, full of plants, high in legumes, super low on meat. They use meat like a seasoning in the Mediterranean. So it's it's like salt or lemon or sugar. It's it's not eaten as the proportion of your plate with your veggies on the side. It's it's a seasoning. It's not highly consumed over there. So that really that focus for me was like, wow, I'm just it's plants. Plants are the protective proponent of this healthy diet quality. And so that changed my perspective of everything and I was like started looking into the research on vegetarians and vegans and I'm like, well, they have this diet that's super protective of depressive symptoms. But then when I dived into the literature, the research actually shows that vegans and vegetarians have higher depressive symptoms and we don't know why. Mm -hmm. Why would that be the case if they're eating this diet that's super protective? And that's where uh, my collaboration team now with Simon at The Proof, um, Tim Crow from Thinking Nutrition, Lauren Ball at Griffith University over here, Talitha Best, we're all now focusing on this reason. What is this reason? It's not the diet. What is it? <laughs> wow. There was, there's just so much to take in <laughs> about what you've just said. Um, it was brilliant. I mean, right from the, we started on a sugar roller coaster and then I feel like I've been on a very a roller coaster with you talking about foods to try and eat less of, foods to eat more of. And then that bit at the end, um, about that, that interesting link between depression and vegetarian and vegan diets. And, you know, a, a couple of years ago, I shifted my uh, diet to predominantly plant-based, um, almost exclusively. Um, and, and of course, when, you know, when that happens, that friends and family will, will send you the odd article that's trying to, um, give you, give you a bit of a dig, don't they? And one of the last ones I got sent was from a friend, um, who, who showed me a research study that was highlighting exactly this, this. And it's quite funny that he sent me that a couple of days ago prior to having you as, as a guest. Um, and, and yeah, I, I kind of didn't know. Is that the paper in Brazil? Um, perhaps, perhaps. I can't remember yeah. exactly. It's the newest one. Yeah, maybe it's it was. It's the newest maybe. one. It came out like four or five days ago. Right, right. Pro <laughs> probably was then, yeah. I'm guessing it's popped up on his uh, yeah. newsfeed or something. And yeah, I, and I, I suppose I didn't know how to respond. I mean, um, a, a pushback that I have heard against that is that maybe people that are um, – eating a more plant-based diet, maybe it's that it's, they're, they're more conscious about their health and the world, you know, climate change, animal rights, and perhaps, you know, that means that they're, they're more, um, what is it, conscientious and, and worrying about things in their life, and, and there's some link there. But that's just something that I've heard from someone else. But it's, it's really interesting to hear that you've got this collaboration going on where you're, you're trying to unpick that, unpick that and find out what's going on. So I'm looking forward to staying up to date with... With, with with what comes from it <laughs> thank you so much megan for your for your time this morning um for talking to us about your research and these really interesting links between the food that we eat and our mental health and also making it really practical by describing some of those foods that we really could be looking to maximize in our diets really really thank you for your time um so we always finish every episode with um two questions and one of those questions is your your tips to thrive i call them your your three to thrive tips something along those lines and and that's where i invite my guests to share with me three tips that can be linked to what we've just been talking about what are some quick win wins that the audience can take away from this conversation 
Yeah. So the first tip for me is the biggest one. Uh, eat more plants, in the words of Simon Hill. Always <laughs> eat more plants, add more plants. And it's not about the quantity of plants that you eat. It's about the variety of plants that you eat. So we recommend trying to eat more than 30 types of plants a week. Now, people are like, what? That sounds like so many. But they're always thinking about fruits and vegetables. These plants can be nuts, seeds, legumes, whole grains, herbs, spices, coffee, tea. Unless you have a propensity to anxiety, coffee is really bad. But everyone else, coffee is actually really good. Chocolate has plants in it. <laughs> um, all these different types of things, different herbal teas, every single different type of plant that you consume increases the gut microbiome diversity. And so the more fiber you eat, the more diverse plants that you eat, the better your physical and mental health directly through that gut-brain interaction. My second tip is try to reduce ultra-processed foods. Now, I'm not saying eliminate ultra-processed foods because the other part of my research that I haven't talked about today is all about intuitive eating and disordered eating. So really depriving yourself of the foods that you love is not a great way to um, – it's not good for your mental health either. So eating less ultra-processed foods. But if you feel like a donut, eat the donut. Just make sure the rest of the day you're balancing that out with an array of whole foods and, and plant foods. So also not getting into that self-deprivation mode and dieting and restricting foods is also quite um, detrimental to your mental health. So um, really listening to your body and what it's telling you is good for you and what is making you feel kind of foggy or moody and steering away from those types of foods. Um, and my third one is all about hydration. It's all, the, it's all the same advice for physical health. Stay hydrated. Try and drink as much water as you can. Uh, a dehydrated brain is a grumpy brain, is a cranky brain. As soon as you see someone getting snippy or snappy, it's usually because they're dehydrated. So keep your brain hydrated is my third uh, tip. Brilliant. What fantastic tips. And it just seems like the this message I'm, I'm hearing from every different angle. I'm hearing it from nutritionists. I'm hearing it from doctors. I'm hearing it from researchers. Just across the board, I'm hearing eat more plants, eat a variety of colourful plants uh, throughout the day, limit processed foods. But at the same time, I love that you put in that um, that kind of caveat of, but you know, don't deprive yourself and don't beat yourself up. You'll probably do more damage by eating that food and then stressing so much about the fact that you've eaten that food rather than just saying, okay, yeah, I, I'm going to enjoy the donut. I'm going to enjoy the cake. I'm going to enjoy the whatever else it is um and then like you said balance that out with the rest of the day the rest of the week whatever it is uh and then hydration i think is a another reminder that i i need actually because i'd like to think that i drink enough but sometimes i do catch myself and think actually you know i've, I've only had a couple of glasses of water and then i've maybe eat, uh drank a lot more coffee or tea um than that and actually maybe i've been missing out on the on the, the just the good old trusty water um so that yeah. was another, a good reminder that i appreciate for sure <laughs> okay and then my final question to you that i always like to finish off with um with all of my guests is what's that one question sorry that's that's not the question <laughs> what's that one lesson 
What's that one lesson you wish you had been taught as a child? So this is a, a really interesting one for me and I've never shared this publicly before so this is going to be interesting for me. So I, I had a really good think about this and the thing that I wish that I was taught when I was a kid that I am worth more than how I look and I've struggled with that all my life is that I have always placed all my worth on how thin I am, how pretty I am, and that has led to me having kind of body dysmorphia. Now, I'm only 55 kilos and 164 centimetres tall, but I look in the mirror and see a fat person and an ugly person. So, and I think that all goes back to what I was taught in childhood about what I was worth. I had to be pretty, I had to be skinny to be worth anything. Now, I'm a successful doctor of philosophy, but still every day that doesn't matter because I feel like a fat, ugly person. So, and this all goes back to why I'm in this field of nutritional psychiatry because of how I feel about my body. I started in the body image in the postpartum field, looking at why women, um, why their body image is the way that it is in postpartum because after having a pregnant body and being nice and large and everyone's celebrating and then you have to skinny back down straight away um, and that leads to disordered eating, dieting, food restriction, all that type of thing. So that is my very serious end to the podcast. No, but I, I really appreciate you sharing that, Megan. And that question can be so powerful, I think, because then it, it invites someone like you to to open up and, and share something, like you said, that perhaps not many people know. And I think that's just so empowering for all the listeners that can maybe empathize with that and have been through that as well and realize that all these things that we've gone through and, and thinking back to childhood as well, it's chances... Of course, other people have gone through that as well. And there is help out there, isn't there? Um, and just, well, just massive respect for you for sharing it. And also then you're, you're turning that into something positive, I suppose, aren't you? And thinking, right, well, what's the work? What's the research? And what are the um, practical tools that you can offer people so that they, um, yeah. so that you can help as many people as possible? So. Thank you for sharing so much. No problem. It, it's, it's, it's an interesting one as well, because that question always then opens up what seems like we could then have another conversation about what you've just talked about. And it's happened with other guests as well. They've shared yeah. something that maybe isn't linked to what we've talked about for the whole podcast. It's, oh, I wish we had another hour now to talk more yeah. about that. But um, perhaps another time, perhaps another time. I would be more than happy to come on the show <laughs> and talk to you about my body image and the postpartum research. <laughs> Okay, that would be that would be great. That would be great because again, I think it'd be a, a useful conversation for for the audience. So I really appreciate you saying that. I think I might have to fly over to Australia though for the conversation, so we don't have all of these te technical issues. <laughs> Come and stay here. We'll go to Byron. We'll see Simon. <laughs> oh, that sounds perfect. That's uh, yeah. I'm I'm definitely um, going to look into that for sure. <laughs> right, Megan. It's been a it's been a real pleasure. Um, People that are listening that want to get in touch with you and find out more about your work, where can they do that? So the easiest thing is I'm on socials. I'm on Twitter. I'm on 
Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn, but the easiest way to find out about my research is through my website. So it's www.meganlovingmeagain.com. So um, everything that I do is on there. So my publications, all the conference conferences I've been to, the podcasts I've been to, I've also got some conversation articles which are way more accessible for the public where it's my research in 500 words but written for the lay audience so there's no scientific jargon and fancy words that us scientists like to use for each other. (laughs) So um, everything's in the one place. Um, You can find links to my Twitter and my Facebook and things on there as well. Um, But all my links on there are the same, Megan loving me again. Yeah. Excellent, and I'll, and I'll put your website website in the show notes. And I, I have to say, listeners, do go and check out the um, articles that you mentioned um, because they are fantastic. I've, I've flicked through quite a few of them, and like you said, you, you you've condensed it and you, and you've made it really accessible to the public. And there are some really really interesting articles out there that um that I think people would would gain so much from reading. So thank you for sharing those. Thank you so much, Sam. You're very welcome and I'm looking forward to staying in touch and hopefully seeing you over in Australia one day soon. Definitely. (laughs) Okay, we got there. Thank you for sticking with us for our conversation. Um, I hope you took a lot from that episode. I really appreciate Megan's time talking to us about that really interesting research into food choices and mental health. And I think the fact that she made it really practical as well by talking about what kind of our traditional food choices might look like and how better they are perhaps not serving us um, in the best way possible. And what are those swaps that we can make? What can we eat for breakfast, lunch and dinner? And what can we be snacking on? What are those foods that we can focus on that really are helping us and helping promote good long-term physical and mental health? As I mentioned before, do go and um, connect with Megan, check out our website, check out those articles, but I think they are really interesting reads and people can take a lot more and I guess you can kind of supplement this conversation with, with those articles as well. If you did enjoy the conversation, please do share it with friends, family and colleagues who you think might be interested. And another great way to show your support for me and this project is to just hit the like button on the episode rate the show follow the show and of course as i just said share it far and wide as well right thank you for tuning in and i'm looking forward to bringing you another episode of the teach strong podcast soon